Good morning. The scripture for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Thank you. Good morning. My name is uh, Sam. I'm part of the leadership team here at uh, Watermark. One, two, three. Now it's on. Hey, how's it going? Cutter, my uh, number one fan. I'll never forget you. Um, I hope everybody had a good uh, Thanksgiving this morning, uh, or this week, I mean. Uh, I did uh, the turkey trot. Uh, 5K uh, this past week, and I think I did pretty terrible. I was like thinking, like, why am I doing this as I'm running? What are we all running from? Like, <laughs> as as I'm you know into this, and uh, I mean, I'm. It's so funny because like uh, Maribel, because uh, I posted at six in the morning, like, hey, doing the turkey trot. I'm so terrible in that exercise. She thought it was a joke that I. <laughs> That I was so dedicated to this joke that at 6 in the morning, I woke up to post this picture. But anyhow, I didn't exercise all year. I probably exercised maybe twice, three times if you count Hurricane Irma Prep, which I do. Uh, now, I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, and uh, good job, everybody, for making out of uh, you know, awkward and hard conversations from your family. Uh, give yourself a sticker uh, for that. This morning... Uh, we're going to talk about racial reconciliation. A uh, very uh, easy subject uh, for us this morning. We'll also look into segregation and more specifically uh, into racial injustice and racial segregation. But first, we will look at reconciliation in the early church, or actually in the latter half uh, of the sermon. So let's uh, pray and get started. Father God, um, thank you. Thank you for your community. Thank you for your church. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning to help us to keep an open heart and open mind. Um, And where my words may fall, O Father, I pray, Lord, that we would hear your soul, your heart in this message. And I pray, O God, um, you will give me the courage. You'll give me the boldness, Lord, to speak truth to power. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Pastor Tommy asked me to speak about a month or so ago, and as I was thinking, I was like thinking, I'm going to speak on hospitality, which is different than racial segregation in a way. Uh, But the last week and a half, about two weeks ago, I started feeling uh, pretty heavy regarding racial reconciliation, and it was very heavy in my heart to talk about it this morning. Um, You know, actually, I've been thinking about the subject race for several years now, uh, it almost seems like we can't avoid it, but it's, it's been on my heart 
more so with the different layers of racism and the role that the church should play regarding this. So let me first tell you about my experience. When I moved to America uh, from Korea, uh, it was a pretty vast difference uh, coming from Korea where it's very, you know, homogenous. It's, it, there, there, I, there weren't any like white people or black people that I knew or other minorities or other people that I knew in Korea at the time. But so when I moved here, it was such a big experience. Um, I don't remember a lot, but I do remember that times I felt very welcomed and that there were other times where I did not feel welcomed. There were other times where I realized, even though I might have not understood the language, that myself or my family were not welcome in this space and time in that area. Um, I remember the racial slurs in school. Uh, walking down the street just randomly going to play basketball, people calling me names and whatnot. Uh, growing up around high school, many of my friends, uh, I went to a predominantly a black and Hispanic high school, and I would often go to one of my friends who happened to be black, and he lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. And he didn't have a car, and so I would sometimes go with my parents' car, and we would go and drive around or do something, whatever high school kids did at the time. I can't tell you the amount of times that we would be pulled over, or even when we're hanging out in the apartment complex in his neighborhood, where we would be searched for whatever reason. And I would hear some of these stories from others, even you know, uh, my coworker. Um, you know, sometimes minorities share different experiences, uh, just to see it matches up. Uh, but I remember my coworker telling me that when he was growing up in uh, Miami. In North Miami, uh, a cop pulled a gun on him because he fit a certain description. And all he was doing was riding his bike in the neighborhood at an age of 13 or 14 years old. Few months back, um, I was having a conversation with my wife, regard, sort of regarding this. Um, she is from the Caribbean, she is black, and so my kids are mixed. And we would have a conversation after another video of shooting surfaced of a young black kid. And I remember I'm trying to move past it, trying to calm her, and, says, and I'm saying, you know, you know sweetheart, uh, maybe 15, 20 years, maybe things would be different. Maybe things won't be like this. And my wife responded by saying that our kids will be teenagers in six years. And so this is some of the conversations and the realities, I think, of some of the black parents, what they worry about. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, uh, and Pastor Tommy uh, used the scripture, I believe, last week or the week before, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Powers and spiritual forces of evil that the kingdom of God fights against is sometimes the power of racial injustice. And I've been realizing more on how exactly our society has created this space of racial segregation and injustice in this country. And unfortunately, at times, the church did not participate or at least did not confront the evil in front of us. I don't want to minimize the, the great leaders within the church that have done that, who have confronted it and was a prophetic voice in, in these dark times. But what I want to talk about is the systematic injustice and racism in America, and then I would like to sort of get into the passage and start unpacking some of these ideas. 
So in order to talk about segregation, I want to talk about uh, what happened in the 1930s. Uh, in the 1930s, there was a housing shortage, uh, and the federal government started a program uh, with the Federal Housing uh, Administration to increase housing inventory because there was a lot of people during the Great Depression, a lot of people lost their jobs, they were out of a home, uh, and so they were trying to figure out how to get people back into a home. What happened was a systematic segregation by the Federal Housing Administration, believe it or not. They basically denied mortgages for African-American families for certain districts. Furthermore, not only were they denying them, the, the white families and the homeowners of the certain districts were prohibited from selling their homes to African-American families. You would find it literally in the FHA manual, and I'm quoting here, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. And when they found it difficult to separate the black and white families, they would either build a wall or build a highway uh, to separate. And actually, they recommended, it was like a best practice, to separate these different races by highways, uh, by the Federal Housing Administration. That was a recommendation. And most people understand home purchases generally is a good thing. Um, it's a good way to build wealth. Um, and pretty much black families were denied this, while white families were able to take advantage of these early home investments, which were subsidized, by the way, uh, to help people get back into the homes, single-family homes. And so they were able to make financial investments, they were able to be financially secure, and they were able to send their kids to college and whatnot. At the same time, public housing was launched. And it actually didn't start out as a welfare program. It was actually built with white middle-class families in mind because that was a large constituents, and that was, that, um, there was a lot of housing that was needed, and no one was, was building home during the Great Depression, or, or not a lot of people, that, which was in decline. But what, interestingly enough, and what happened was uh, black families were only thought sort of as an afterthought for the public housing. And it was segregated. There was a white designated public housing, and there were black designated public housing. And afterwards, what happened was, because FHA was sort of promoting and, and trying to move uh, the white families into single-family homes, there were a lot of vacancies in the white designated public housings. And so what happened was, because there was a, a great deal amount of uh, black families not being able to purchase some of these homes, they were being filtered sort of into uh, and allowed into the white designated public housing. And so they eventually opened up in that way. So new suburbs were predominantly white, and housing project projects eventually became predominantly black. Around the same time, in 1950, Brown versus Board happened. Uh, which stated that having separate public schools for blacks and whites were unconstitutional. And what happened was there was this revolt and resistance of the integration. It's not like, you know, kids from different backgrounds were holding hands, skipping around, excited to go to school. There were real resistance. Real integration didn't actually happen for another 15, uh, 10 or 15 years. What's shocking, though, 
and, and some of the teachers uh, in our congregation may realize, is that our public schools are segregated as they were 50 years ago. Just this past summer in Alabama, a school that was predominantly, uh, actually half white, half black, uh, were made into an all-white school, or mostly white school, um, because of redistricting. And, and, and this happens usually when the white school tend to have more resources and, and funding versus the black and minority schools and Hispanic schools. And what happens is the, the, uh, the minority schools tend to have less source, resources, less funding to educate these children. Let me be clear that these are not happening only in southern states. It's happening in places like New York, West Coast, San Francisco, which you may think is diverse, but many of these redistricting is also pushed by parents in PTA meetings and whatnot. They are saying, I don't want my children to attend a bad school, which sort of equates to, I don't want my children going to a mixed school or with other minorities. But by doing this, by doing so, it's pushing our schools to be more and more segregated. And I'm not saying we should send kids to the you know, worst scored, uh, test scored uh, schools in our area. That's not what I'm trying to say. However, we should be aware of how we may be perpetuating the social injustice in our communities just by simply of school selection. that we may be continuing in the same fashion and patterns of this world with simple thing as this. Now, on top of that, it's very tough when the churches are so divided uh, by itself. Martin Luther King Jr. called um, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning the most segregated hour in America. And, and church have become a, somewhat a little bit more diverse. We made some progress in this area, but I believe it's still relatively segregated, about 80% from what I read recently. So we need to listen and understand that it's not just the issues uh, in our society regarding housing, business, uh, schools, and education, but the church have been part of marginalization and at times turned the blind eye. Sometimes the space of evil or the potential for evil is created because the people of God did not intervene. For us to do nothing as, as a church, for us to sit passively at times, even participate, uh, we need to reverse some of that. Uh, race in itself uh, is a great deal of social construct that has, it's involved, very much so in colonial times uh, with European nations taking chunks of the rest of the world, uh, claiming it uh, with the rest of the world who they viewed like inferior or savage or uncivilized. Uh, even in America, as most of you know, where numerous atrocities have committed against the Native Americans, um, against, uh, with the ugly history of slavery in this country. But see, in order to do that, one group would have to think the other group is less than them. In order to justify what they're doing, they have to. And so growing up, I remember uh, in uh, Korea... Um, I wonder what other people were like besides Koreans. Uh, and I would have PBS, uh, and I would watch Little House on the Prairie. And so that was my expectation of what white people were like. I'm like, 
pretty interesting. Uh, which, to be honest, I was a little disappointed when I moved to America and saw the English version of Little House on the Prairie, because in Korea it was dubbed. It wasn't subtitled. It was actually dubbed. So I was like, they weren't speaking Korean? That's weird. Uh, but I asked, I asked this question to my father, who was a pastor at the time in Korea. Uh, he still is, actually. But I asked him, you know, where did the different uh, races come from? Where did the white people come from? Where did the black people come from? Uh, and he would explain to me by telling the story of Noah's sons, that Ham was the one that was cursed by God, and that line became the black race, even saying that slavery was part of this curse, which is not true. <laughs> Ta-da. Uh, the curse was actually to Canaan and his descendants, but their descendants were not even Africans. They were actually Middle Eastern, believe it or not. But at least when you follow the story and the narrative uh, in Genesis. But you see, this was taught to me by my father, and it was taught to my father from some seminary. And this was pushed out from some of the Western theologians at the time to justify what they were doing, to justify the atrocities, what they were participating Let me be clear that this is not what the Bible defends or justifies. Uh, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of who God is. And we have to look at everything else through that lens. And I hear many people say, you know, they just don't see race as a way to say that, you know, they don't like to discriminate or favor one race over the other. However, we see in the Bible, it very clearly distinguishes different tribes, different nations, different tongues, and different languages. Even in the story of Abraham, God tells him that all peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And we see in Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There is this sense throughout the scripture that God's plan was to include all the families of the earth from the get-go, all the nations, and that there is actually one human race, one humanity that carries the image of God, that Jesus sacrificed for all, and that all have surpassed unsurpassable worth to God. And so let's look at this passage in Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. Uh, I'm just going to read the first two verses. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Actually, I want to read verse 16 as well. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put death their hostility. And so in verse 14, uh, you know, Paul could have meant that the sort of the temple courtyard that separated the Jews and Gentiles, uh, or could have meant the, the holy or the most holy places that separated them. But the hospital, I think the big picture here is that there's spiritual and sociological, societal uh, barriers that are between, uh, that cause this separation. In verse 15, where some of the Mosaic law caused hostility and conflicted, uh, a conflict between Jews and Gentiles by Jesus' death on the cross. That hosti hostility has also been put to death. So, this word here, 
some translations may actually say abolished, kareo, uh, uh, which sort of technically means like nullify or rendered inoperative, uh, which doesn't flow well in your tongue, like rendered inoperative. It's a little weird to say. And this is significant here, though, because there were very deep divisions and animosity that was going on between Israel and Gentiles. And Paul is attempting to show, in similar fashion, to the reconciliation of God and man between Jews and Gentiles. So there's no divisions, but that now we're created in Christ, a new humanity, one new humanity. And so whatever the conflict there may have been, it is gone, it is abolished, it is nullified, it is rendered inoperative. New humanity out of different groups came out of Christ Jesus, sort of this new sense And it doesn't matter the tribe. It doesn't matter the nation. It doesn't matter the language. And in truth, that by Christ's sacrifice, his sacrificial love makes racial reconciliation possible and into reality. So we see this sort of play out in Acts, uh, in the first century church. In the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we see this interesting development of a new church. As the church was growing, there were issues between Greek-speaking Jews and native Jews or Hebraic Jews living in Palestine. Uh, These two types of Jews uh, made up the Jerusalem church at the time. Um, Some of your Bibles might say Hebrew uh, or or, uh, native uh, Jews or from Palestine, and they spoke Aramaic and they used the Hebrew scriptures. The others were Hellenistic Jews who originally lived outside of Palestine Uh, diaspora, either through war or exile, uh, and sometimes they would come back uh, either for a pilgrimage or to sort of uh, be buried uh, in their uh, homeland. But many of these Jews that returned to Palestine for pilgrimage or to end their days, uh, they spoke primarily Greek. They adopted Greek thought, custom, language, and lifestyle. And because of this difference, there were frequent tensions between these two groups. And it spilled over to the early church. The native Jews or the uh, Hebraic Jews observed the Mosaic law a lot more strictly than Hellenistic Jews. And they despised this Hellenization in which they felt that they compromised the religion and way of life. As the church grew, some of the Christians believed that the church leaders were discriminating against the Greek-speaking Jews unfairly. And the conflict arose over the distribution of food of the widows, which, were, which was a priority for the Jews provided for their widows this weekly in, in synagogues along with the poor. So as a solution, the apostles asked the disciples to choose seven men to oversee to take care of the widows, both Greek-speaking and, and the native Jews. What's fascinating here, and I, I sort of bold it up, up on the screen, is that the seven names mentioned above are all Greek. It wasn't unlikely to uh, have a native Jew with a Greek uh, name at the time. However, it probably was the case that there were Greek-speaking Jews that was elected within the seven men along with native Jews that were chosen and given the responsibility to take care of the situation. And here's how the disciples were different compared to the world. Those with political power 
tend to shut down minorities. We're seeing this happen if you're following world affairs in Myanmar uh, with the Rohingyas, the Muslim minorities, where it's becoming almost like a genocide. But here's how uh, the disciples are different. They're empowering the minorities. They're empowering those who have been discriminated against. They're championing those who have generally been unset on the side. And the, so kingdom of God should cultivate this culture to grow for those who have been marginalized, disenfranchised against. I, I remember watching different ways of racial reconciliation happen uh, growing up in America. Uh, there were sort of the I am so sorry campaign, which actually came out of, uh, I believe, UK. Uh, they were also promise keepers. I don't know if some of you guys remember promise keepers. Uh, it was huge uh, Christian men rally. Uh, and... and and what they were trying to attempt was this sort of racial reconciliation moments. And I call it moments because that's what they were. They didn't go beyond those moments. Um, I remember this sort of this retelling of a Native American pastor of what he remembered from these events. He said he felt like someone who was asked out on a date, paraded around town to show people that they got this person to a date, but that's the emphasis and nothing else substantial happened. Because these Native Americans, other minorities and blacks were invited to the stage and they would say sorry in front of the, 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 in the event, in the rally. And, and, and they would sometimes even wash their feet to show how sorry they are and how they should be called to serve them as well. And that was it. That was the extent. Nothing else happened beyond that. Nothing as substantial in terms of reconciliation has happened because they were kept away from the conversation and decision-making. These groups were considered or as the mission field, but never as part of those who were also able to carry out the mission at the time. Unlike what we see in Acts 6, the original disciples and the apostles empowered the marginalized. They empowered those who were discriminated against and gave them a voice. Racial reconciliation is tough and long, and we have to continue to fight uh, the evils in this world. It's not a fight against each other, but against the powers and evil spiritual forces in this world, as we see in Ephesians. And it's for us to be a prophetic voice that confronts the ugly injustice that, 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 that is in, in our space and in our time. And to show how powerful it is by the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. By showing how, how, uh, um, how uh, as a prophetic voice that confronts this ugliness. And for that, we have to stay vigilant. Uh, what's our posture? My question for you is, what's our posture towards sort of the systematic racism uh, in our world? I want you to imagine two different groups, uh, one group being closed circle and another group that seemed to be ready to include more people. I believe God is challenging us to be more inclusive, to be more compassionate, to be more loving, and to share the love of God with my fellow neighbor, to open up that circle. And I'm talking about the power of the kingdom of God that brings those who were excluded and marginalized and saying those who have been kept away are invited to the table. Similar to how Jesus declared the most important rule uh, in, ter in terms of the law, 
which was to love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law sort of follows suit. Who is my neighbor? Is it just a nice retired couple that lives down the street? Is it, is it uh, the single mom that's on welfare in the other part of town? Is it the refugee, the children of refugees in our land who have immigrated from a war-torn country? Is it the, the, the Muslim kid that's getting bullied in school? Who is our neighbor? It's all the families of the earth. That is our neighbor. And in reality, what we need to put out and be a prophetic voice is to call out that there is really that one race and all of us sort of carry this image of God. And that all of us have unsurpassable worth to him. Here's my challenge for you. I want you to take some time, if you have, to look into uh, opening up your home, opening up your circle of friends, uh, to mentor kids. There's programs like uh, Big Brother and Big Sister. And, And mentor kids who might not have the same religious background as you or different color than you or whatever instance it may be, different uh, class, and, and maybe and listen to them, and maybe you'll help them to grow as they help you to grow. I, we wanted, we're doing a communion now, and so communion service, you guys can re- get ready. Uh, my second challenge is to open up and break bread with another person. I know... Sometimes it's difficult because we have a certain way of doing things. But break bread with someone that you do not know here today and pray for them. And pray that, that, uh, that God instills his spirit in us to have the boldness and the courage to confront the social injustice and racial segregation that's happening in our country and in our communities. Amen? All right, well, let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you, Lord, for your heart and the Bible, oh, Father, and what you're speaking of. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we break bread uh, that has been broken for us, wine that has been poured out for us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will instill in us your spirit and, and revelation of, of uh, what's going on in our country and what's going on in our communities. I pray, Holy Spirit, O oh Father, that we would not turn a blind eye, but to reveal to us some of the systematic injustice that's happening in our communities and in our neighborhoods. I pray, Holy Spirit, as we break bread and open up that circle You would empower us to do so, to love our neighbor as ourself. In the name of Jesus, amen.